just, it's just such an amazing story and such an incredible insight into the heart of God and into our own hearts too. So, so let's go to, let's just read it together first just to refresh our memory. I, I know most of you are probably quite familiar with this uh, parable, but uh, let's, go, let's just read it together. So uh, Jesus continued, and if you recall, uh, before this, uh, there was, we had the parable of the, um, the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, you know, the woman who loses her coin and the lost sheep. All, all these parables are in aid or in um, uh, responding to the Pharisees who are complaining to Jesus that the people who are coming around him that he as a rabbi is ministering to are the, uh, are the tax collectors, the prostitutes, <coughs> and the generically called sinners, uh, people who don't follow the Torah, uh, possibly pagans or who know, Roman soldiers, you know, the people who tended to gather around Jesus who wanted forgiveness, uh, who wanted God's grace, and they didn't... Uh, these people, generally speaking, did not follow Torah, didn't follow the law uh, the way the Pharisees did, not, not at all. In fact, some of them just it wasn't a priority for them. And so they're upset and angry that Jesus is ministering to, uh, as I said earlier, you know, the least of these people in the community who others had discarded or uh, reviled. And so the, all these parables are an answer to that charge. Like, what are you doing ministering to these people? These are not the righteous. These are not the ones who will inherit the kingdom of heaven, is the charge laid at Jesus' feet. So that's the context of this parable. There was a man, God, who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. There's a reason some things are in red. I'll get to that later. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. As you know, pigs being unclean animals in the Jewish faith, you weren't to touch them, much less feed them. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Let me go next. Oh, yeah, next, next. Thank you. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Next one. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Which sounds like the end of the parable, but beautifully it's not. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Well, it does sound like a grievance. And then this. 
My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And right there, it doesn't sound like the parable should end. It sounds like there ought to be a response from the brother to know precisely what the brother is going to say, but that is where the parable ends, because, of course, Jesus is actually speaking to the Pharisees, and it's for them to decide how the parable ends, or likewise for us to decide how that parable ends. So, Jay, if you won't mind going back to the beginning of that story, and we're just going to walk through this. Um, so we've got the context. There was a man who had two sons, and, and, and uh, you know, they, they lead these very separate or, or make these very different choices. And clearly, or at least in my view, reading this parable, uh, one son sort of symbolizes the sinners, the, you know, the tax collectors and prostitutes, et cetera, for whom uh, the Pharisees are mad that Jesus is ministering to. And the other son symbolizes the Pharisees. So you have sort of the righteous and the unrighteous uh, in, in the eyes of the Israelite society at that time. That's, that's who these people symbolizes. Now... The first thing that happens, and I'm sure many of you have heard this in, in other uh, sermons as well, is the younger one says, uh, first of all, it was, it was never the younger one's place to demand anything of his father. Often in inheritance, the way it worked, um, the older son would get most and sometimes all of the inheritance, but usually it was most of the inheritance. And then the younger sons, however many they were, got smaller portions divided between them. But it certainly wasn't his place to say, hey, I want that now because, of course, you get your inheritance when... Uh, your parents pass away in that culture, that, and in our cult, most cultures is when the inheritance uh, comes. So uh, this is just, uh, it's rude. In a sense, it's indicating in, in, a, in a metaphorical way that you are dead to me, that the, the, what the son is saying to the father, that you're, you're basically dead to me. It's like you're already dead. I just want the, good, the goods that you have. I don't care about you or your life. And so uh, the, the father does this, and he not only gives... Uh, property to the younger son, he gives the property to the older, he divides the inheritance between them. So he doesn't just give the younger son his share, he goes and, and he goes ahead and gives um, to both of them. So right from the beginning, from this very first sentence, you know quite a number of things. One, you know that this father uh, is fair. So when he gives uh, his inheritance to one, he gives it to the other. Two, he's generous. He did not have to do this. It, by law, if uh, with a son being so uppity, however you want to say it, he could have just said to his son, you don't get any inheritance. That would have been within his, within his legal right. He could have said, well, now you don't get anything. But he not only gives him his inheritance, he gives it to him before he dies. So he's generous, and he's gracious. You know, he doesn't lash back at the son. He's forgiving. So, you know, basically you get a sense of, of, a, of a god, or in this case, a father, who's like, well, this is what you want. You know, here, here's my, my largesse. You know, here's my, my gift to you. So he does, uh, without complaint, <coughs> what this younger son asks. So not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And, uh, you know, this, this is, uh, of course, this is terrible uh, decision-making across cultures, across the board. We all know this is terrible decision-making. This was even worse decision-making back then. Usually when you got your inheritance, uh, we tend to think in terms of a monetary culture. Uh, money, of course, was a thing back in the Roman Empire and Israel at this time. But also, usually when you got inheritance, you got it's okay. Okay. <laughs> um, you got goods. Um, you, got, um, you got some of the land. You got uh, clothing. You got um, uh, material goods like cattle and whatnot. I mean, you got things when you got an inheritance as well as probably some money. And so uh, when, it, when it says here, um, what does it say? Uh, the younger son got together all he had. 
and then set off for a distant country, uh, what that would be indicative of is that he monetized everything he had. He sold his land. He sold his property. He sold his goods. He sold, got everything in, into physical cash, which is a really dumb decision back then, especially because cash, of course, can be stolen, lost, uh, robbed. Uh, uh, you can lose it very easily. Uh, as opposed, It's much harder to steal 20 oxen than it is a, a little bag of silver. Uh, not only that, but back then, you didn't exactly put that money into the stock market or a bank or anything. I mean, your money's not yeah. making money. Cows will make money for you. Uh, money won't. Um, nowadays, it's a little different. But So he just he makes a series of stupid decisions and goes off to this distant country and squanders his wealth in wild living. That word wild living uh, in the Greek is interesting. It doesn't, um, I think this might be the only place it is in the Old Testament. There might be one other I can't recall. But it's not a common word in the Greek. Uh, um, I think osotos or something like that. Uh, but it means, in its original Originally, the word meant incurable, and then it came to mean, as you know, words evolve in meaning, it came to mean uh, making decisions in such a way that you, you did harm to yourself uh, because you, you would do such harm you c it couldn't be cured, uh, you know, it couldn't be fixed, it was just that bad. And then it came to mean uh, just uh, being a hedonist to the nth degree, like uh, in such a way that you can't come back from it. So it's a very specific word with kind of a specific range of meanings. There is no really good. Uh, you, when you read this, uh, all the Bible translations translate it differently because there just isn't an English word for it. But it's like basically pouring yourself out in such a way that there's no coming back from it uh, by bad decision making is what that word means. So this is what he does. It's very clear. Um, and after he'd spent everything, there's a severe famine and he began to be in need. And this is where it gets really intriguing. Now, I want us to think for a second uh, just about this distant country. Uh, and this... Uh, you know, it's, it's very carefully worded the way this is. He, he goes off to, a remember this is a parable, of course. The, this isn't a real country. The, all this is uh, metaphors for something else. So what is this distant country that he goes to and he, he squanders everything in wild living? Uh, I, I believe, and I think it, um, it's supported throughout the parable, that basically this is just a metaphor for sin, uh, for sin in general. That this is, a, this is a land of what we would call sin. Uh, choices that are made out of our own desires, out of our own hearts, and not taking into account God's will. Uh, not even taking into account our own dignity, but this is just a land of where everything goes uh, when you're living for yourself and, and not for God. And the means justifies the ends, etc., etc. That's, the, that's the, the wild living. This foreign country is, is, a, is a place where that is uh, encouraged. But then there's this interesting thing here. Okay, so suddenly he, he's, he, he spends everything he has and he looks around and he realizes that there's nothing in this land that's actually empty, that there's a famine. That there is really no abundance here. It's just, it's barren and there are hungry people everywhere. There's a famine. And he himself begins to be in need. He himself becomes hungry. So then he goes, and that, I, I don't like that phrase, hired himself out. It's not, it's not what the Greek says. What it says is he went and cleaved to or joined tightly with a citizen of that country, some enigmatic figure here. So it's the same phrase it uses when it, in the Bible when it talks about cleaving to your spouse. It's the exact same word. Uh, so he, he cleaves to the citizen of that country, and then uh, this citizen sends him to the fields to feed pigs. And some Bible translations will say employed, as if he were being paid or something. But there's nothing like that in the Greek. All it says is that he, he cleaves to this citizen. Now, what's a citizen? A citizen is someone who belongs there, who understands the land, who that's you know, his place. That's what a citizen is. So here's this person who belongs here, understands the land, and this person seems to have some authority, some power. Because after he cleaves to this uh, younger son, 
he sends him to feed pigs, the worst possible thing to do to a young Jewish man. Uh, you know, go feed pigs. It's, it's insulting. It's uh, any number of things. And he's not even getting paid because, well, at least he's not getting paid enough to feed himself. He was so hungry he wanted to eat the food, the pods that he's feeding to the pigs and didn't have the, the means to do that. So here's this, and it, uh, to me this is Satan. This is what this person, this is what this, sit, this enigmatic citizen is, is the citizen of the world of narcissism, the citizen of the world of wild living and, and, and spending yourself out in such a way that it's purely unhealthy. He's, he's being controlled by someone else now who he's cleaved to, and that's who Satan is. And it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Now, I'm going to get a little more visceral here. I, I find it interesting sometimes just to get, as I said earlier, in terms of the Oriental Institute, I find it interesting to get into the physical world of the biblical world sometimes. That word uh, pods, keratone, is actually a very specific thing. We know what it is. If you want to go to the next slide there, Jay. That's a pod tree. Uh, I think that one's in Italy, but they had um, you know, thousands of them in, in Israel. Uh, it's, it's what we call, if you're a carob, uh, uh, carob pods, um, there's a next picture shows an actual carob pod growing in a tree. Looks a bit like poo, not going to lie. Uh, but that, those, are, you've, those are carob pods, and that is, that's what uh, he is feeding uh, to these pigs. Um, I actually found this on the web. There's this uh, lady who's uh, theologically minded, and she uh, thinks uh, and writes about matters in the Bible, and she's also a gardener, and um, uh, what's the word for someone who specializes in plants? Horticulturalist. Uh, yeah, horticulturalist. <laughs> that wasn't it, but it, same thing. Anyway, um, and so she writes about these things, and one of the things she notes in relation to this passage in the uh, Prodigal Son, which I thought was interesting, is that uh, this, this particular pod, the carob pods, were used by poor people in ancient Israel uh, to make flour if they couldn't afford you know, real flour made from wheat. They would, they would pound out uh, these things, grind it up, and it was like poor man's flour. So it was sort of a, a poor substitute. And she went on to say, what, um, not that that's what uh, Jesus was necessarily going for in the parable, but just an interesting uh, mind connection that uh, really what this younger son had done is substitute, uh, you know, a poor substitute for the real thing. You know, that these pods are sort of uh, um, indicative of just a cheap, non-filling substitute. And I have to say this cuts into my personal life a little bit uh, in ways that are, are uh, painful to me from my childhood because uh, my mother, God bless her, uh, she raised me in sort of an alternative food lifestyle. I don't know if you've heard of the macrobiotic diet. Run screaming if anybody ever uh, t talks to you about the macro. But when I was a child, my mother would actually make chocolate milkshakes uh, using soy and carob. And she would call it a chocolate milkshake. And even as a child, I knew <laughs> that that was not a chocolate milkshake, but I was so bloody hungry that I, I drank the thing down and pretended to like it and hoped she'd make me another one, but that was not a chocolate milkshake. Mm -hmm. So if anybody gives you a carob milkshake and says it's a chocolate milkshake, you say, get behind me, Satan. I've read that parable. Uh, I come from the land of plenty, not a land of want. Um, so I, I got a little incensed about that. But anyway, just kind of, just, uh, let's, go, let's go back to the, the passage there. Um, it's okay if you like carob, and if you're a macrobiotic, don't take offense. It's just, I just feel sad for you, that's all. It's just a <laughs> sense of pity. Um, so anyway, so, um, so, okay, so he longs to fill his stomach with these, these pods uh, that the pigs are eating, but no one gave him anything. Um, 
no one, the implication, no one in that culture, in that country, even really cared about them enough to give them food to eat. So there, there's no love, there's no care, there's just power, control, and need. Uh, he's lost in a land of sin. Okay, so let's go to the next uh, passage. I'll skip through those two pictures, and yeah, thank you. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. Now, that phrase came to his senses in the Greek is, is literally came to himself. He encountered himself. Now I think we as human beings, if you've lived any length of time, you understand this phrase. Uh, or you, and you've seen it in other people too, where all of a sudden you just encounter yourself. You're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I, did I really a, say that? Did I really do that? Have I made these decisions? Or is this really what I believe about this? Or, or you know, how did I get, you know, in the words, the talking heads, how did I get here? Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter, but um, a sense of coming, to a sense of self-realization. And I think this is a, uh, the reason this is in the parable written this way is because to for, for us to come to Christ, at least speaking for myself, to come to Christ and give my life to him, it required initially a certain degree of self-realization a certain degree of self, this is who I am. This is what I have become. And to be honest about it with myself, to not try to uh, have excuses or rationalizations that, you know what, actually I'm a pretty good guy and I'm pretty decent and um, you know, I don't really need God. I can do this on my own or, or I'm, you know, I'm strong enough and smart enough and gosh darn it, people like me kind of thing. Um, there's a sense of self-realization here. So he, he, he came to himself and said, I, you know, I, he saw where he was for the first time. You know, it's like the veil being taken from your eyes and you see where, you, where you've gotten yourself. And he realized and he knew and had the knowledge. And for me, this is the evangelism part of this. That we're not responsible for other people's decisions or actions or we can't make people do things and God forbid we ever want to make people do things. But we can give people knowledge and just let them know, uh, you know, hey, there is a God who loves you deeply and dearly regardless of where you find yourself feeding pigs or what you have done or how you've treated your father. Regardless, you are deeply loved. That is an immutable fact of this world for those of us, all of us, who are made in God's image. And so he knew that. That knowledge was in him. He, s he said, and, and it's uh, uh, in the Greek, it's, I will arise and return. It's much more poetic. I, I wish they wouldn't try to make it too colloquial for us. But when it says, I will set out and go back, I will arise, uh, the, the Greek word is Anastasia, for I will resurrect myself and return. <laughs> I will rise up and return. I will retain, I will, um, I was going to say I will retain my dignity, although actually he doesn't. Uh, in, in a in a, now that he's in a, a space of repentance, his dignity is no longer important. Uh, uh, he, he, but he, w he does want to be back in that relationship. Um, and, and the relationship is important. It's not just about, uh, and that's in, his change of heart is clear from this next sentence. It's not just about the food or the goods that he's going to get from his father. For the first time in the parable, there's a sense of relationship with the father. I will rise and return to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's why I put that in red. That's the first sign that anybody cares about, this, about the relationship with the father. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son which we know from the very first sentence that he's not, that the father could have right, rightly uh, written him out of the will. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. It's the same uh, phrase in the Greek. So he, got, he rose up and, and, and returned. 
as, as that first one. Okay, so um, yeah, let's keep going here. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son, of course, still feeling repentance, feeling remorse for what he had done, because he's lost a lot of his father's gifts and goods that his father gave to him are not coming back. Those are just gone forever. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that is true. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger. Rings, by the way, could indicate um, inheritance. You often wore the, the family signia and it often indicated that you were an heir, uh, not a slave, not a servant. That's why the ring's important. Bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And this is the image that Jesus is putting forward to get out of the metaphor for a minute of, of his ministry, of him walking through Israel and the people who gather to him and the people who delight in him, uh, this, this is what's going on. He, he, uh, he calls his ministry a celebration. It's, it's a joy. Um, it's something that we're delighted about. I can tell you as a pastor, there's nothing more, um, more uh, disheartening, or that's not even the right word, uh, head-scratching. No, not quite it. Um, puzzling, I suppose about going to a church, you know, in a guest preaching capacity or whatever, and to, to give a sermon or to be part of the worship service and looking out over the, the people there and seeing a bunch of unhappy people, or at least people who look unhappy, um, you know, apathetic or, or just sort of down or, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a incongruous to me. Like it's, I mean, I don't expect everybody to show up all, that's <laughs> right, people are smiling now. No, that's not what I mean. Um, <laughs> We bring our griefs to church as well as our joys. And I don't expect everybody to be peanut league positive, as our friend Bill Sutton likes to say. Uh, it's a place for a wide variety of emotions. But when there's no emotion, and it's just an apathetic sort of, uh, you know, for me it's just like, well, then what are we doing here? You know, we don't have to be here. No one forced, well, some of the kids were forced to be there, but most of the adults were not forced to be there. And, and so, and this relates to later on with the, the other son, but, um, talk about missing the point of a celebration. Jesus' ministry, Jesus describes his ministry as a celebration for a reason, because it was. And in other stories, you can see it as well. But um, joy should be at the heart of the Christian faith. If it's not, there, there, you know, there's a serious problem. Anyway, so they begin to celebrate. Uh, let's, let's, go, let's move on here, uh, Jay. And as I said, you might have expected that to be the end of the story. It ends very beautifully and naturally, and it tells us something about the nature of God. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to, to talk about, about the nature of God. Here's this God who, you know, as you know, you've probably heard in other sermons, for a, uh, a mature uh, Israelite man of that time to run was not done. People, and, and, and that's true today, too. I mean, people of note, of worth, you don't see Barack Obama running for Air Force One, you know, or, or uh, uh, you know, um, you know, you just running is kind of a, something that children do, um, adults walk, and, and that there's a sense of dignity. And so here's this father who runs uh, to his child and embraces him, even before, by the way, he knows what, the, what he's doing back there. Maybe he's back there to ask for a loan, you know, 
But it doesn't matter. He's just happy to see him. He's just happy that he's there. He's in, back in relationship with him. And that's, uh, for, for me, um, and my, my, my wife reminded me of this in the car yesterday when we were talking about this, and she's, um, that's, that's, not, that's, not just for that, that's not just an attitude for God to have. That's an attitude for us to have. Uh, that's, that we should mimic God in this aspect, uh, to, to have delight and, and joy when, when we're back in relationship, when people have uh, returned, as it were, um, uh, regardless of, of what they may or may not want from us or, or, or any other external circumstances, but just a delight in each of us as human beings, just that I am here and you are here, and let's celebrate. Let's, let's enjoy the fact that our, you know, we have breath in our lungs and time to enjoy each other. There's something about just that sort of unconditional love uh, that I'll be candid, I'm, I'm not particularly good at. I mean, that's, uh, this is part of the parable that challenges me. I'm, I'm real good at conditional love. <laughs> I have a list <laughs> of conditions for me to love you. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm, I'm not so good at the unconditional joy. Um, I, I have a nickname in this church as the anti-fun, uh, which uh, is, is sometimes aptly applied to me. Um, because it, requires a it does require a certain amount of vulnerability. This is a vulnerable moment for this father, for this God. And God is all about being vulnerable. I mean, this is the God who came to earth and was crucified. Vulnerability is not a problem for God. And it is for me. And so that's a problem for me, uh, is what I'm trying to say. That uh, joy and our, our real selves uh, need to be uh, on our sleeves. Okay, so uh, back uh, to the older son. So, meanwhile, the older son uh, was in the field working, as, as a good son would. Uh, he's, you know, he's working. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, I, I kind of sympathize with him on this one. I, I have, uh, have you ever walked past a, a house where you know, your friends live or family or whatever, and there's a party going on inside, and you didn't know there was going to be a party, and you're like, uh, or in high school, you remember when all the popular kids had a party, and it didn't, uh, you weren't really invited or they forgot about you. No, Kristen's like, no, I, what, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> most of you know what I mean. Um, I, there's, I, I, I can feel that twinge, even today, even at uh, my age today, I can feel that twinge a bit like, well, wait a minute, it's a party? I didn't, who, who had a party? It wasn't my party. Uh, so I, just a, a minor bit of sympathy uh, for, the, for the older brother here. So anyway, he, he hears the music and dancing. He called one of the servants and he says, what's going on? He says, your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother gets so mad about this that he won't even go in. He's just so ticked about that that he doesn't want to party. And again, I think we can all relate to this too. When you get mad and you're not invited to a party, you're like, well, you know, it's fox and the sour grapes, right? Well, to heck with you. I'm going to have my own party over here. It'll be more fun. You know, and never is, but uh, that's, that's what you tell yourself. You don't want it. You're mad. You know, you're hurt and you're angry. He's hurt. He's hurt and he's angry. So his father goes out. Again, a beautiful image of God. You know, he doesn't say, well, the heck with him. Then, right? You know, just he, he goes out. He leaves the party and he pleads with him. This is a strong word. You know, it's not just a kind of, oh, won't you come in? You know, there's, we have a great fattened calf, you know, with fries. You know, it's, he does, he's pleading here. Um, he says, please come in, or, or whatever he's saying. But he answered, and then his anger comes out. Look, you know, in the Greek, you do, it's behold. Uh, you know, it's like a large word. Behold, <laughs> all these years, I've been slaving for you, 
and never disobeyed your orders. In the Greek, that's entole, which is commandment. Okay, so now he's, he's pushing against the Pharisees here. Um, all these years I've been slaving for you. And that, that word is doulos, that's slave. I mean, he's, he's painting a, a dark picture here. And I've never disobeyed your commandments, uh, the commandments from the Torah, you know, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Yet you, Father, God, you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, let's look very carefully at the nature of his complaint. Because you would think, he seems to be really upset about his lot in life. But when you compare it to what his younger brother has been through and what he has experienced, who's the luckier son here? I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? Uh, the luckier son is, is, is this older one. He has not had to go through the, the despair and the, um, you know, the, the agony of being in a land full of famine where no one cares about you, etc. But it's very interesting that he mentions specifically, there's a note of jealousy here. He squandered your property with prostitutes. He, did, he had a wild time. He had a great time. He had all this sex. I mean, he, th there seems to be something of, of jealousy here, something of, uh, you know, what's, how is it that we're, having, that we're having a party for this guy who's already had all these parties, uh, to put it differently? And it's interesting, too, that, you know, he doesn't mention being with his father. There, he's been with his father all this time. He's been in presumably a relation, and he doesn't care about that. It's not about being with the father. He says he never even got a young goat which is really intriguing because who owns all the property? The son does, right? The, the father says at the beginning, the father gave his entire inheritance, everything he owned to his sons. So every time that this son had a party or killed a goat or had a barbecue or everything he did, everything he owns comes from his father. But he says, you never gave me even a young goat. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's very intriguing. I mean, the, the notion that you could have all, everything you own from somebody else and then accuse them of not giving you something. But he was out slaving in the fields, which is interesting too. Uh, um, th you know, there's in this metaphor, in this parable, there's obviously lots of servants everywhere. Um, he was out working in the fields. He wasn't with his father. Okay, and, and, it, and it comes full, fully clear in, in the final passage of, of the parable. So let's go to the, the last part. My son, the father said, you are always with me, or uh, you have always been with me, depending on how you want to translate that. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours, which we've already talked about. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so what he's saying to his son is, look, what I just said earlier, you know, you, you have everything. You have everything. And more importantly, you, he, he leads with, you are always with me. More, the most important thing is you have me. That we are, have not, our relationship has, was never sundered, but you are, feel like it's broke. The, the way the older son describes the relationship with God is that this is a broken, unhealthy relationship. I'm a slave. I'm uh, overburdened. You don't care about me. You never gave me anything. It's not a healthy relationship. And the father, he's like, I'm right here. And this, this is, of course, is the danger of legalism. This is the danger of making God into a series of rules, that you, especially rules that you can't really ever fully follow perfectly. 
that you that following God will then become onerous, and and it, you'll feel like a slave. I mean, there are two slaves in this parable. There's the the slavery of the younger son who finds himself in the land of sin, and there's the slavery of the older son who feels like he's a slave to this God, who all this God wants to do is love him. I mean, it just comes up again and again in the parable, just wants to be in relationship with him. But both of them are slaves in, in a way. One has been freed and has come back and said, you know what, I was wrong and this, I'm not even fit to be your, your servant, but I'm so glad to be back here with you and I have sinned against you. And the other one, as we said at the beginning, has yet to make his decision. Because that's, again, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you have to make a choice. You're either going to delight with me, Jesus, you're going to delight with me that people who are so far from salvation, I mean, <laughs> miles away in the foreign land, cleave to the, the, the alien citizen, that they were so far away that how can we not party when they come back into the fold? I mean, how is that even, we have to. I mean, it's, it's too good a thing not to celebrate. And you have to decide. And if you are angry because uh, you have been, you're the ones who have been faithful and have followed all the commandments plus about 6,000 others that weren't in the Torah or in the Old Testament, and so you've been out slaving in the fields even though you didn't have to be, if you're going to be upset about that, that's not on me. That You have to figure out what this, this is a relationship between you and me. This isn't about following all my commandments. Um, so uh, for us as a church, I mean, I think... Um, Excuse me. Part of the, uh, I'll make this my last point, but part of the uh, strength, part of the uh, point of this parable, part of where it hits the hardest, doesn't really relate that much to us as a church, in my view, because I don't, I mean, I don't know if this sounds arrogant or, or whatnot, but I don't think we struggle much with a church, as a church, with legalism. And I have been to churches where I do feel like that has become a, a bit of an idol. I don't think that's so much our Achilles heel. It might sneak in from time to time in various places because we're human and we're not perfect, but it's not a huge issue for us. And I don't think that we're, the, we're not the type of church or the type of people who, when someone has been far off in the land of sin and, and you know, wasting their life and comes back, that we're not going to be like, no, wait a minute, we don't want anything to do with this person. That, that doesn't strike me as us either, or at least I haven't seen that. Speaking as someone who used to live in that land and was welcomed back, <laughs> uh, you know, by my brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I would hope that this would be that, that kind of a church and that kind of place. Um, so I, I, I think in a certain sense that, that kind of goes past us in a way, or it, it doesn't have the full, uh, the, as strong an impact as it would to the Pharisees who are hearing this parable. But I do think, uh, and maybe I hope I'm not reading myself too much into this, but I think as a church we can learn about this father who runs out of the house when he sees someone with open arms to give them a kiss just to be so delighted that they are there. Because we don't always do very well in delighting in other people, uh, which is a whole different category of things than accepting. Uh, 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 I mean, accepting's good, but delighting is where it's at, as far as I'm concerned. And part of the reason I found Christ and recognized Christ uh, was because of, uh, you know, as many of you know, the Sutton family was integral to my coming to the Lord. And um, nobody had delighted in me like that before, uh, the way that Bill and Jane delighted in me. Um, you know, if I showed up on their porch, uh, and I, should sh I wish I brought a picture of myself at that time to know what showed up on their, <laughs> so you, could, um, you know, my long-haired, tie-dyed self, they were just thrilled. And they didn't care 
what I was there for. They were just thrilled that I was there. You know, hey, it's Seth. Kill the fattened calf. They didn't have any fattened calves, but, you know, put out a cup of coffee. Uh, and um, and uh, Ben, Matt, and Zach, their kids were equally thrilled that we were there. And it was a glorious thing. And that's what we can take from this. Uh, that, that image of God. I think that's something that we can strive for, of just delighting in people. And that, I think, would bring more of the Holy Spirit into, into I mean, I'm taking it as a challenge to myself as much as to anybody else. Um, that's what I look for. That's what I long for. More joy. More vulnerability. More coffee. <laughs> all these things. All the gifts of God. Uh, anyway, let's, let's pray and, and, and uh, go to communion.